are listening to the Elephant in the Room podcast with your host, Sutta Singh. Each week, we will bring you a diverse range of inspiring speakers on issues of inequality and inequity. You will hear stories about fairness, justice, belonging, and about best practice for creating a more inclusive workplace. So, if you are an individual or leader interested in a fairer, equitable, compassionate society and workplace, this podcast is for you. My guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast this week is David Guerra, internationally recognized keynote speaker, transformist, and best-selling author. Good afternoon, Dave. Welcome to the Elephant in the Room podcast, and thank you for being a guest today. My pleasure, Suda. Brilliant. So let's get started with the questions. Can you give us a quick introduction to who Dave is and what you do? Yeah, I thought about this in preparing for this conversation, and every time I have to answer that question, I have to think about it again. Because I think I've been an inquiry my whole life around who actually am I and what am I really about? And I think what I've kind of come to is I'm really a seeker of truth. I am just deeply curious to understand how things work. And in particular, I developed a deep curiosity for how is it that business works and What is it that makes business successful very early in my life? And then I went to college to kind of learn about business and get a business education and then came out of college and I still didn't feel comfortable that I understood business. I guess I would say I had a mechanical appreciation, but I didn't have a practical appreciation of business. And then I went to work for companies and especially very large businesses. And that provoked me even more around understanding how business operates. And I have to confess, I was really confused for many years around how things worked in business because a lot of what I saw didn't make sense to me, Suda. It kind of left me with this frustration that a lot of what I had set my life up for, my career for, was not really proving out to be very fulfilling or meaningful or kind of make sense to me. And so then I stumbled into this territory of quality, and it was like I'd been to the promised land, and I finally found something I could kind of grab onto that kind of hung together for me that made sense. Then I learned a lot from W. Edwards Deming and then Peter Drucker and many others, I would say, in that I formed my company, Corpus Optima, some 27, 28 years ago. I'm kind of generally would fall into the category of a management consultant. But that's kind of a misnomer because it presupposes that if you manage something well, you'll produce a great outcome. But that's not correct. If you manage something well and you don't lead it well, then you'll suboptimize the outcome. So that kind of led me to finally this revelation that I'm not a management consultant. I'm a management and leadership consultant. And so 
now I see that I'm a transformist. My job, my work is to help people and organizations transform to become all that they can be, to optimize their performance. Wow. This is so interesting because I think half the world calls themselves management consultants without actually understanding what it means to be, you know, that it's not in itself the end being a management consultant. Anyway, let's move to the next question. What does leadership mean, Dave? Is it a position? Is it a set of skills or behavior? And so, you know, I did not question this as much maybe four or five years back, but I have been increasingly questioning what leadership means. And I have learned a few things but I think there's so much more out there. So it would be good to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, Suda, that's a really great question because as I was sharing, became very consumed with that inquiry around what does managing mean and what does leading mean? And back, let's say 20, 25 years ago, when we talked about management and leadership in business, we used the terms interchangeably like it was the same thing. And then in organizations, we have this kind of generic way of thinking like the leaders are the people at the top and the managers are the people in the middle and everybody else are the people that kind of do the work. The colloquial term is the worker bees. And so the idea is that leadership and management is a location but that's not true at all. The truth is that leadership and management are both two sides of one coin, the same way that mind-body are two sides of one coin, or yin-yang are two sides of one coin, or particle-wave duality is two sides of one coin. The work of management is about control, and it is about control of process. And the work about leadership is about liberation, and the liberation is liberation of spirit. When you reframe organizations that way, then you see management and leadership as two complementary properties that exist ideally all the way up and down organizations in that everybody's a manager and everybody's a leader. I remember a um, reporter asking uh, Colleen Barrett, the sort of the uh, famous uh, chief operating officer of Southwest Airlines once, uh, kind of the love airline, can you tell me a, a little bit about your leaders? Tell me about the leaders at Southwest Airlines. And she looked back at the reporter and says, I'm not sure what you mean. Everybody's a leader at Southwest Airlines. We don't have any job that's not a leader job at Southwest Airlines. And I think when you reframe leadership that way, you see it as a way of being as the opposite side of the management work in organizations. I think it was Peter Drucker that said famously in his very last book, Leadership Challenges for the 21st Century, there's no such thing as managing people. The task with people is to lead. And I thought, well, that's a big wake-up call because all of every manager I've ever met has this paradigm that part of their job is to manage their people. And the idea of management implies control, which is correct. To manage something is to control it. 
anybody who ever has to make a recipe or to drive a car or to accomplish anything knows that there's steps in the process. There's procedures. There's a way of doing this, sort of a one best way. But that's different than the joy of doing it, the uh, intrinsic motivation for doing it, the fun of doing it. And so when you think about things from that view, it's mind-boggling how simple that principle is that the way to think about leadership is around helping people, liberating people, liberating the spirit of people, creating the environment so that people are doing it because they want to and not because they have to. And so all of that sort of right brain kind of activity, behavior, way of being is the antithesis of the left brain kind of control, process, structure, order part of things. And it applies to organizations the same way it applies to people, the same way it applies to economies, the same way it applies to governments, the same way it applies to marriages, the same way it applies to everything. See, this sort of puts everything on its head because, you know, for the longest time, I think for decades, I mean, everything around leadership is supposed to be around managing people, which is the command and control sort of approach. But moving on to the next question, when we speak about leadership, we use words like powerful, commanding, fearless, always available, boss man. How relevant are these words? In today's world, considering what you've just said, actually, a lot of what you've said also, in theory, it is to do with how we define leadership also, right? That's really a very good question, Suda. I think as Warren Bennis had said, most companies are overmanaged and underled. And if you look at the planet and the state that the planet is in, I would say, like we discussed in our original conversation, We have too much yang energy, not enough yin energy, too much control, not enough liberation, too much management, not enough leadership. And so the real problem is a paradigm that we are still tethered to, especially in a Western society, this paradigm of organization as machine, a mechanistic paradigm that presupposes that you can engineer an organization or anything into perfect efficiency, but that's not true. Machines don't feel. Machines don't have a self-organizing nature. Machines don't breathe. Machines don't evolve, and only organisms do. And so, the idea of a paradigm for optimization that works is a paradigm of organism, not machine. And if you reframe organizations and really everything into this view of left and right brain or this view of mind-body, this view of the two sides of everything, the tangible and intangible side of everything, then it's so much simpler to operate it in a way that's sort of working smarter and not harder. And so the words that I would use to describe leadership, it's really easy 
when I speak with a group of managers or a group of executives around the topic of servant leadership or sort of what is the best leadership, I tell them, you already know what the best leadership is. You already know, and I'm going to prove it to you. And I ask them to just think about someone in their lives that had been a profound influence on them and their careers or their development or their growth that had maybe a particular that they would call out as the best leader I've ever known. It could be a parent, it could be a teacher, it could be a boss. And then give me an adjective from that person that kind of encapsulates who that person was. And they use words like, listen to me, believed in me, coached me, had compassion for me, was fair, was encouraging, was available, kind of modeled, would always be willing to roll up their shirt sleeves and do the work. They were inspiring and sacrificial. Those are words that they came up with. And then when I show them sort of the portrait that they paint, like that's the model of servant leadership. That's what it is. Suda, in my research, I'll confess to you that I set out to learn about business because I wanted to be successful. And I had in my mind the idea that to be successful, you have to go learn how business works, what business success is. And so I set out to sort of investigate what is super performance, who has the best performance, if you look at organizations that outperform over the long term, what kind of animal is that? What are they doing? Is there some simple pattern that they all contain that you can call out that is kind of self-evident? And I tell them, I didn't come looking for servant leadership. I came looking for super performance. But everywhere I found super performance, I found that way of being that is contained in all of those words over and over and over again, kind of like Groundhog Day, that pattern kept repeating itself. Yeah, there's a lot of food for thought in what you have just said. There's so much to actually unpack. I mean, just the idea about there's too much of control and not enough leadership. And also around the paradigm of organism and not the paradigm of machine that we've been operating on so far. So do you believe that now is an important time for us to redefine what leadership means and also reset our expectations of leaders, especially in the context of the world which we live in? Yeah, I don't think there's ever been a more important time for servant leadership than the time that we live in, Suda. You see it, in, especially here in this country, in the U.S., this polarization that we've experienced in politics. There's just extremism, too much left and too much right, and not enough cooperation. And you see the outcome that that's produced is huge disorder and dissension and nobody winning. And to me, the next generation is going to be about the female leadership, the integration of a lot more yin into the yang. I think the condition that we're in has come about because of way too much kind of bossism, I call it, or selfish leadership, which I would generalize around the opposite of servant leadership and the short-term thinking that has produced this sort of, okay, well, now we're really in a pickle. Yeah. And so we have that situation with short-term thinking is 
how can I produce instant pudding? And it's really easy to produce instant pudding in an organization. All you have to do is let a lot of people go. But I call that flash performance. The chickens, the flash performance always come home to roost because then you end up with processes that don't work anymore, people that are overworked and overstressed, and then people that will leave. We have this condition of the great resignation where hundreds and thousands of people have left their organizations because they're not finding meaning, well-being, or fulfillment from their organization. And then there's a lot of research that shows that the largest reason that people leave is because of their boss. People don't leave organizations. They leave their boss. They leave their bad boss. And how did the boss get bad? Well, the boss kind of learned what the boss before him did. And then that boss learned from the boss before him or her. And so that paradigm of this is how you're supposed to do it is a paradigm that is over 100 years old. And it's sort of way past its expiration date. Now we're in the state, I believe, where the millennial generation, I'm going to call it the heroic generation, that's sort of the first generation that's digitally native, that is making up almost 50% of the workforce today, doesn't want to be led that way, doesn't want to be managed that way. And so it's, I think, because of the existential backdrop of the world we live in, people need a work experience that's meaningful, that they can give themselves to, that they can believe in, and that has some substance, that has a more meaningful return than just the economic benefit that it provides for me and my family. My well-being matters too, and it matters more than being in an environment where I come out at the end of the day just completely psychologically diminished or worn out, I need something that will energize me. And I think that's a big driver of this shift. But the other hidden driver is I really believe that enterprise is finally coming to this revelation that servant leadership is good for business. Deming used to say, does anybody here care about profit? Well, then it pays to cooperate. Then it pays to work together. It pays to help your people. This is so interesting, Dave. So you've spoken about servant leadership when we started this conversation about leadership. Is there a definition for servant leadership? Yeah. That's another very, very good question, Suda. You know, servant leadership has been in all the world's major faiths for thousands of years. We have it in the Christian tradition and the model of Jesus Christ. We have it in a Buddhist tradition and the model of Buddha. I really love the the example of Gandhi and the uh, Indian culture. And I learned a lot from Swami Vivekananda. I learned so much studying him. But one of the things he said that I thought was so profound, he said, before you can be fit to be a master, you must learn to be a servant. So servant leadership has been in all the world's cultures from probably the beginning of time. Maybe we haven't called it that, or maybe we haven't recognized it as sort of one pattern, one distinguishable pattern. But it was Robert Greenleaf, who was an operations consultant in AT&T, that brought the term to business. 
And he wrote a book called The Servant as Leader. In the monograph, The Servant as Leader, he describes the servant leader as someone who's called to serve first, then lead. And he distinguishes servant leadership from the other form of leadership that he said is usually driven by a need for power or ego or to be the number one guy, to be at the top, some sort of personal need to outperform everyone else versus lead. And where he got his inspiration for that was a book that he read called Journey to the East by Herman Hess. And it's a short book, but it's really profound. And so then he wrote his famous monograph, and then it turned into a book, and then the Greenleaf Society was created. And now many, many, many organizations have adopted servant leadership as sort of their way of being. I've interviewed so many CEOs and worked with so many amazing organizations that operate from this paradigm. And I would say that the best way to approach servant leadership is to think of yourself as an apprentice. I remember W. Edwards Deming, sort of the grand old man of quality on his business card, said, W. Edwards Deming, apprentice statistician. And (laughs) that's just astonishing because he's well regarded as maybe the most famous statistician in all of industry and all of enterprise. I've met so many people I would put in the category of servant leadership and great servant leaders. And when I point that out to them, they kind of blink and look at me like, what are you talking about? I'm like, you're amazing. Everybody loves you. Everybody comes to you for advice and everybody trusts you and your performance in your department or your function or your group or your organization is off the charts. And they're very humble, Suda. They're very much, well, I'm just doing, I don't know any other way to do it than this way. It's sort of in their bones, it's in their way of being, the practice that's sort of acquired over time in all of our development work with executives, all of our executive coaching and leadership development work. When we teach these principles, we teach the concept of servant leadership and we examine famous servant leaders throughout history and sort of point to their experiences and kind of how they did it. I would say for anyone who wants to be a high performer, for anyone who wants to be successful, for anyone who wants to be happy, joyful in life, then seek out servant leadership, investigate it, and look closely at the companies that you interview for that you become a part of around their philosophy, around their values. I remember, again, back to values that Who a company is, is not a set of values that you post on the wall. In some groups, I would share a company's set of values from a particular company. And it said, always be good to people, always operate with integrity, always tell the truth, always do all of these wonderful things. And I'd ask them, guess which company this is? Mm -hmm. They think about it and they think of all these great companies. I said, this is Enron's um, values. And we see what happened to Enron with force ranking, this sort of a greedy, every man for himself mentality. The whole thing collapsed like a house of cards. And, you know, Ken Lay, the CEO who was venerated here in Houston, where Ken Lay, if you've got a meeting with Ken Lay, that's a big deal. 
or if the Enron people came into your meeting, everybody kind of moved and there was almost hushed tones around it. And, and then he had to hide in the parking lot because he couldn't come out because he was vilified. He went from the very top of the kingdom to the least regarded. And I think that we see that pattern repeated over and over and over and over again all over the place. It's a pattern of suboptimization. It's a pattern of every man for himself. It's a pattern of selfish leadership, and it produces disastrous outcomes. True. Yeah. Do you have any examples of leaders in the world today who you can think of who are great servant leaders? Yeah, that's a very, very good question. I can think of a lot of people in history that I can say, study them, like George Washington, like Gandhi, like Ernest Shackleton, like some of these great faith leaders, Warren Buffett in business, Herb Kelleher in business, Robert Wood Johnson in business, Walt Disney in business, people like that I could point to. I'm kind of careful to point to any current leaders, albeit there's phenomenal leadership, I believe, at Apple and at Google. And I can think of a lot of companies I would put in that category. And then I would think of a lot of companies that look like they're high flying and high performing that are starting to crumble. You referenced Netflix uh, earlier and the idea of a toxic culture there, what you read a lot about them. I think setting up an organization where you have to compete with each other internally to succeed is setting up an organization for failure. One of my mentors, George Martinez from Allegiance Bank, Texas, previous Sterling Bank, Texas, really operated from the view that people are unlimited bundles of potential. And if you approach everyone from that view, Maybe they haven't blossomed yet. Maybe they're still a bud and not a full flower, but the seed of their potential is inside. And if you operate from that paradigm that people are all bundles of unlimited potential with that respect and regard, it'll come out all by itself. But if you operate from the paradigm that people are how they show up or people are limited or there's a fixed nature to people and they don't have the potential to grow and become more, then that's what you'll get. You'll get a company or a team that operates from that paradigm. Yeah, this is so interesting to hear. Dave, you've spoken so much in detail about what servant leadership is like, and you've shared examples of what it is in action. In the world that we live today, where there's deep uncertainty, like you mentioned earlier, there's polarization, there's constant flux, geographical and cultural divide, hybrid working. Can servant leaders create a cohesive culture in this kind of world? Or is it just setting up people for more failure? Dude, I was really taken by your questions because I thought, wow, that's a really good question. All of these are very profound Questions, and we could talk for hours around you know, any of these questions because they're very provocative. I think that the idea of like building a cohesive culture, I think that's becoming implicit now because maybe it's too generalizing to say this new generation of millennials, this new female energy that's coming into organizations and institutions, but the best 
quote, I remember about W. Edwards Deming that all of his sort of his disciples would say when people would ask them, what's the most important thing you learned from Dr. Deming? And they would all say almost universally, there's no substitute for knowledge. And so I like to describe this as like new profound knowledge. Deming used the term profound knowledge for optimization of a system. And he said, to make anything the best it can be, it's not just everybody doing their best. You have to know what to do. And so he uses this model of profound knowledge for optimization of a system where he said you have to have an understanding of, of variation, statistical variation, to see that everything operates in variation. And so the idea is to control the variation, to reduce it so that you have more predictable outcomes. You have to have a theory of knowledge, a second component. You have to have sort of a, a theory that's guiding your behavior. Why do I do what I do? What's my operating system that guides me? You have to have a theory of knowledge. Then he said, you have to have a understanding of psychology. You have to understand how people behave. Then he said, you have to have appreciation for a system. Systems are collections of interdependent parts with one common aim. And he said, those four parts work interdependently to optimize any system. So we call that profound knowledge. I call new profound knowledge. Well, three of those components, the appreciation for a system, theory of knowledge, understanding of variation, of statistical variation, those all have to do with process. And the other one, psychology, that has to do with people. And the three things that have to do with process, those are all things that I would say are the management part. And the thing that has to do with people, that's the part that is the leadership part. That's the part that's the culture. So what if it's not four things? What if it's really just two things? That's so elemental. That's so simple. That's so astonishingly almost stupid that it's easy to dismiss. Well, yeah, that kind of hangs together that management and leadership or the left and right brain of organizations but organizations don't operate with that simplicity. Institutions don't operate with that simplicity. Governments don't operate with that simplicity. And I think the answer to this exponential rise of complexity that we're experiencing today is simplicity. I think we're going back to the future, and the future we're going to arrive at is a much, much simpler future if everybody's involved, doesn't mean that we're going to do what everybody wants to do. That is impossible. But everybody has a voice, a real voice. And when we work through together the best way to produce any outcome, it's going to be a much more powerful, a much more successful outcome. And so I would say that if you look in organizations at the uh, higher performing business units at the higher performing management groups, the higher performing teams, they're all operating from this paradigm. One of the things that is clear is that I think the good far outweighs the risk. And this is a time when people are looking to simplify things. And I think that's going to be a trend for the future. Whatever the risks, servant leadership as something to adopt towards creating better organizations is something that everyone should think about. 
also when we talk about leadership today, we speak about authentic leadership. We speak about conscious leadership. We speak about ethical and moral leadership. Where does servant leadership fit in all this? Or are there any overlaps? Yeah, Suda, that's another really good question because you could find all of those behaviors, all of those properties in a servant-led organization or team or project. You'd find them being authentic, find them being more conscious. I think I shared with you that from this discovery of this pattern, what I call the polar complementarity of the two-sidedness of everything, the tangible and the intangibleness of everything, it sort of led me into like, where else is there super performance? And does it still manifest that pattern? And lately, I've been really very interested in the idea of, of super women. What is the model of superwomen? Is there such a category? And if there is, what does that pattern look like? And I say that because I've known so many in my work experience in my life. And like you, very high performing, very amazing how superwomen are able to produce these prodigious outcomes. I see also this very sacrificial nature Especially so many superwomen are moms, and it just is a marvel to me, a contemporary image of a working mom that's also producing amazing outcomes, not just in business, but with the family. But the pattern that I see is not just this incredible capacity and just brilliance around these prodigious outcomes that superwomen produce. But also this amazing authenticity, what you see is what you get. It's sort of like, this is always going to be the real me. There's no mask. There's no pretense. And amazing grace. I always have time for you. I will always respond to you. I will always try to be a help to you. I'm always going to be there. That, to me, is just, I don't know, miraculous and astonishment. And I started out the conversation by suggesting that, Part of the mess that we're in, the planet, I think, is because too much male energy, not enough female energy. And so I think that the best of anything comes from the marriage of the two energies and the sweet spot is in the middle. And that's a real simple principle. It's a real, real simple principle that's really easy to teach that's very hard to believe. Can it be that simple? because we're overcomplexified with all of the noise of sort of what to do, all the mechanics of what to do. So I think that that's what the future is. And as far as like the leadership style, I really think there's only two. There's the selfish leadership and there's the servant leadership. And everything sort of falls in a continuum between those two styles. The short-term thinking, the every man for himself, the kind of what's in it for me, how much power can I get that falls on the selfish leadership side? The How can we win together? How can we take a long view of what we're doing? How can we make it so everybody grows and becomes the best they can be that falls on the servant leadership side? Wow. So essentially, I think one of the things that I take away from what you've said is that we need to simplify and stop using so much of jargon to actually exclude people. Servant leadership is 
more simpler. It is just about opening yourself up and being more empathetic and looking at the bigger picture rather than just promoting your own power paradigm and what you want to achieve. Would that be right? You know, absolutely. If you look at how we've kind of grown up in business, we've really grown up with this really perverted sense of how things should be organized. We have Wall Street thinks about CEOs that are good managers. And we got a good manager in there that really made a success of that company. We have paradigm of project management. We have paradigm of diversity management, of quality management, of HR management, of knowledge management. Everything is management, 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 management. But that's a misnomer. It should be the best managers and leaders of organizations, the best project manager leaders, the best diversity manager leaders, the best HR manager leaders. And when you sort of reframe it like that, like Deming said, to manage one must lead, like there are two sides of one coin, then the famous Eastern proverb says the reverse. You see that to manage one must lead, then to lead one must manage. So if you're a great leader and everybody really loves you and you have a great team and Everybody you know, sings a song together, holds hands in the morning, but can't connect the dots, can't execute the process, then it won't be successful either. And so the idea is that it's the polar complementarity of anything that makes it successful. And so the new management science is a management and leadership science. And it's moving from a view of systems thinking to organism thinking. When you move from systems thinking to organism thinking, you move from machine to organism paradigm. And when you move from machine to organism paradigm, you move from just thinking to thinking and feeling. And when you move from thinking to thinking and feeling, you move from just management to management and leadership. You move from just process to process and culture. You move from just control to control and liberation together. I think you've very neatly summed up all our discussions today. This has been so enlightening and such an interesting conversation. And I guess we could keep on speaking about this for many hours to come. But this is a podcast, so we will end here. Thank you very much, Dave, for being a guest and for sharing your vast experience and insights on leadership and transformation and servant leadership. It's been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. Well, Suda, that's so very gracious and generous of you. For your audience who might be interested to learn more about servant leadership or about these principles, all you have to do is Google servant leadership, and it's really all over the place. But there's uh, several blog posts on our company blog that speak to it directly. One is the end of bossism at superfication.com or any of your audience that's interested can find me on LinkedIn, Dave Guerra or Google Super Performance and I'm sure I'll show up somewhere and be happy to respond or answer any additional questions anybody might have. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us this week on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on any of your favorite platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast today, 
don't forget to write a review and tell your friends. Sign up on the link in the show notes to receive updates on our guest speakers, blogs, and events. And don't forget to tune in every Thursday for new episodes.